Well, like I said, my name's Jake. Um, I'm a pastor here, um, and I am so absolutely privileged and excited to conclude our series on the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as we dive into the book of Deuteronomy, which is maybe the most, but at least one of the most, most formative books in all of Scripture. Um, but before we get there, I want to do a quick little activity, and I'm a youth pastor, so activity sounds like dodgeball, but it's not. Uh, a quick activity to set the tone for what Deuteronomy is and how we ought to read it. These four statements are all said by very, very famous people. They have all been said before by extremely famous people. You definitely know who every one of these people is. Four very different statements, each said by a very different famous person. They're all very different in what they say, but they have one thing in common. There's one commonality between all of them, and my hint to you is that it's nothing that they actually say that they have in common. It's all about how they were said, or more specifically, when they were said. Does anyone know what these have in common? I don't know if someone said it. No one got it first service. They are all people's last words. They are all famous last words. And who said them is pretty fascinating. The first one, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow, is Steve Jobs. As he said to his friends and family as he literally laid on his deathbed, um, people have gone back and forth wondering what he meant by that. I think it's really compelling to wonder what he meant by oh wow three times as his last words. Second one, I'm bored with it all. Any guesses? Winston Churchill. Yes, Noah. There we go. Yeah, Winston. Did you just, you just acted like that was a wild guess. That's an incredible wild guess. Winston Churchill. Um, yeah, that one's Winston Churchill. I'm bored with it all. Jeez. Um, the next one, um, I meant to YouTube how to actually pronounce this. Can anyone pronounce that well? Thank you. Oh, thank goodness. Uh, that is Marie Antoinette as she stepped on the foot of her executioner on her way to be executed. I don't know if it was passive-aggressive, if she's sassy, or if she's just really, really polite. I want it to be all of those things. Um, finally, the only one I knew before I looked these up, and my personal favorite is, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Leonardo da Vinci. If you're thinking of all the stick figures you've drawn in your life and what he's done, we, we have some major problems. Um, yeah, I love that last one. I just, I, I want that to be like my yearbook quote, if I could go back and make it that. But we just witnessed a strange phenomenon where all four of these quotes in and of themselves are not remarkable. They're normal statements that someone might say. That last one's a little out there. You might hear someone say these statements in passing or in conversation, and you wouldn't think twice about them. But the moment you realize they are famous last words, they gain their weight and significance, don't they? They immediately become compelling. They immediately demand your attention and, and your critique and your analysis. Even that, especially that first one, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow, means nothing. My, my two-year-old daughter says that all day long. But the moment you realize it was Steve Jobs' final words, that's really, you're going to think about that later, won't you? It's, it's really compelling. 
And the reason for that is that last words are bigger on the inside than they are on the outside. They're compelling. They're significant. The words we choose to give to loved ones as our last expression of anything towards them, they matter. If you have a chance to give your last words to someone, you're not just going to choose any words. You're going to select them carefully and intentionally. And so these are the words more than any other that seem to have a way of crystallizing what is truly important and formative. Now, over the past weeks, we've been working our way, really barreling our way through uh, the first five books of the Bible, commonly called the Torah. Um, these are in the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, also called the Hebrew Bible, because this was the Bible that Hebrews knew of. When Jesus teached and, and taught and preached, teached, taught, and preached, there we go. This was the Bible he quoted. He quoted the Hebrew Bible. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he quoted the Hebrew Bible, actually exclusively Deuteronomy. It's fascinating. When, when Jesus talked about matters of life and faith, he quoted Deuteronomy left and right. And within the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, the first five books, are massive in their significance. They're the most important part of the Hebrew Bible. And one week at a time, we've been working through each book. In Genesis, we see the origin of things. As God creates a good and perfect world and puts humanity within that world with the mission of taking care of it, of multiplying in it, of flourishing in it, and possessing the land and being a witness to all others as though we are conduits of God's goodness. But Genesis 3 happens. Humanity looks at God, doesn't trust him, tries to take for themselves what is God's, and we find ourselves with a Bible-long pattern of, of failure, repentance, restoration, failure, restoration, over and over and over again. Sin and brokenness becomes the, the baseline to the Bible. But God does not leave humanity in their brokenness. In Exodus, we see God raise up the almost comedically ill-equipped Moses to go and deliver Israel from their slavery, from their brokenness. And God does so. He liberates Israel in deeply practical ways. Moses leads Israel, God's people, to Mount Sinai, and there God cuts a covenant with them. And he says, if you obey me, Oh my, obey all my commands, all the code of the covenant, you will be blessed. I will protect you, I will multiply you, and I will establish you in a promised land. A new creation where you will rule and have dominion and be a conduit of my goodness. It's Genesis 1 and 2, right? God presses restart on the garden, but humanity presses restart in Genesis 3. And as Moses is coming down the mountain with the code of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the Israelites are just doing, well, literally, God knows what. They're, they're, they're breaking the core commands of the covenant. Moses rage quits, smash the Ten Commandments, and Israel finds themselves cursed in a way, cursed to wander in the wilderness for 40 years before they're able to go to the promised land. And the purpose of those 40 years is, is kind of a few things. First of all, the generation of Israelites who rebelled against God will die off. 
and a new generation will rise up, and they will inherit the promised land. God says, this wicked and cursed generation will not step foot on my promised land, but I'm not done with Israel. I will raise up a new generation, and in the wilderness, I will sanctify them. I will shape them. I will teach them how to have communion with me. In Leviticus, I will make them holy. I will use the wilderness as a school to form them into my image in the book of Numbers. And then finally, the last scene in the book of Numbers is the first scene in the book of Deuteronomy, and it is exceptionally cinematic. The people are standing camped at the Jordan River. Here's the wilderness, here's the Jordan, here's the promised land. They're not in the promised land, but it is right there. They can taste it. They're camped at the threshold of every promise God has ever made of them. It is there, right there for the taking or for the losing, more accurately. They're standing there looking at the promised land. They're about to enter, and then we have Moses who will die outside the promised land. And so he has one chance, one opportunity, he has one shot to say to Israel everything he could possibly think of to equip them to obey Yahweh in the promised land. So Deuteronomy are the last words of Moses, bearing the weight and the significance and the compelling freight that last words do. Deuteronomy, as a book, contains Moses' last words, his last advice, his last teaching, all for God's people, so they don't repeat the sins of the former generations, and that they live within God's mission as conduits of his goodness in the promised land. The the name Deuteronomy in Greek means second law, and we'll see why, but in Hebrew, it bears the traditional name Heduvarim, which just means the words. And so, Deuteronomy, chapter 1, verse 1, begins this way. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. And we know they're his last words. Think how cinematic that moment is. These are the words. This is everything Moses has got to leave Israel with for covenantal obedience. What would you say to Israel? No profanity. That would be me. It's like, guys, um... What would you say to Israel? What would your last words to Israel be? What would you tell them so that they would obey Yahweh, which they don't have a great track record of? Moses launches into three speeches in the book of Deuteronomy. They're recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. And the first speech looks back. It's the story thus far where Moses, to all of Israel, recounts every failure, every success, every deliverance, every salvation, and much of the covenant. Moses tells this current younger generation, this is what the older generation experienced. This is what they did. This is how we got here. In the end of Deuteronomy, in the third speech, Moses flips the script, goes full prophet, and starts talking about the story to come. He stops looking backwards, and he looks forwards. So the book of Deuteronomy is a speech bookended by the past and the future. And in the middle is where, Deuteron- or is where Israel finds themselves. They've come to this place. They can look into the future and everything God has promised them. And right now they have one question as we ought to have as God's people. What does it mean to live faithfully? What is God's mission for us? What does it mean to live faithfully? And so in the middle of Deuteronomy, what we find are laws. 
some familiar, some new. The familiar ones are verbatim copies of the laws in Exodus and Leviticus. It's like Moses reminding Israel of all the laws they've failed to keep. He goes, this one's a problem for you guys, so I'm going to say it again. Then we have some new laws, and they're incredibly specific. They expand on old laws. They reframe old laws. They make things much more specific. It's like when you buy a product, and there's it's like a way too specific warning on it. Like, don't light it on fire and put it in your mouth. Um, and you go like, well, some idiot must have tried to do this at some point. Those are the new laws in Deuteronomy. <laughs> it's Moses saying, so you found this loophole <laughs> in the law. No more. <laughs> like, this, this is what the law means. This is how you keep it. And most of the new laws are exceptionally social in their mindset. There are new laws that uh, encourage and enforce more, more moral and more ethical treatment of foreigners and slaves. There's more laws about the treatment of women and orphans. There's laws about economics, how to care for the poor. It's an extremely missionally minded law set where Moses makes it quite clear that being a conduit of God's goodness will mean loving others. We don't get out of that one. We have to love others. But within this law set, Deuteronomy does something kind of convenient for us. Whereas it's very difficult to summarize an entire book of the Bible, as we found, uh, Jesus kind of does it for us with Deuteronomy. In Matthew, the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they're trying to test him as usual, and I can picture Jesus kind of like rubbing his forehead, um, just looking at the Pharisees like over the top of his glasses that he definitely wore. Um, but he says to the Pharisees, the, the Pharisees come and say to him, Jesus, what is the most important law in the Bible? And Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy. He quotes a command in Deuteronomy that is as famous as it is important, and it isn't just the most important command. It actually summarizes all of them. It summarizes the entire law. It summarizes all of Deuteronomy, and it summarizes everything God's people must live in and embody if we are to be faithful witnesses. And so with that, let's dive into it. Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 9 the text often called the Shema. This is Moses speaking to Israel, summarizing up everything. He says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today, they shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You will bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's a famous text. Easily the most famous in Deuteronomy, probably the most famous in the entire Old Testament. It is the central command for Israel. And the first thing we notice is this, that first word, hear, O Israel. Anyone know the Hebrew word for hear? Shema, good. It's, 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 it's a very obvious question. The Hebrew word for here is Shema, but the way we need to read it is like this. When your, children does, when your child does something they're not supposed to do, mine are perfectly obedient, but when yours do, of course, you don't just say, hear me. What do you say? Listen, right? When, 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 you're, when your kid runs towards the hot stove and they're about to touch it, you don't go, hey, can you listen up? You go, listen to me and obey. That's Shema, right? You are shemaing your kid. 
You're saying, shema me, right? Hear and obey me. So right off the bat, this is not a suggestion. This is a command. It's an embodied holistic command that summarizes everything the church ought to do with God. And then Moses goes forward to say, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He says, listen and understand this. God is not in conflict with himself. Who God is today, he will be tomorrow. God is not in conflict. He is unity. He is in perfect relationship with himself, which hints towards what he says next, which is, you shall love the Lord your God. Now, that troublesome little word, love, is what is worth all the commotion. It's why Jesus quotes this text. It's why it's the center of Deuteronomy. But the peculiar thing about it in that phrase, you shall love, is that typically when Moses speaks to all of Israel and gives them commands, he talks in the plural sense. That's right, we're going to diagram a sentence. It's, it's okay. I know it's a little traumatic, but we'll get there. He speaks in the plural sense. Like in the Ten Commandments, he says, y'all don't commit adultery, right? You all don't do this. You all don't do this. Israel, all of you, every one of you together, don't do this. Make sense? Plural. But here, it's singular. That word you, and even the verb love, that is a second person singular thing. God is not saying, Moses is not saying, hey, y'all love the Lord your God. He's saying, you love the Lord your God. Here's why that's important. The Shema as a command is not directed to each one of us primarily on an individual basis. At least not here. It's directed to us as a unity. Just as God is unity, the church ought to also be unity. And so the Shema is not just me saying, it's not just Moses saying, love the Lord your God, love the Lord your God, love the Lord your God. It's God's people as a whole, you have a mission. And your mission is to love the Lord your God. It is an every member mission. For Israel, loving God is not just a command, it's a holistic mission, an every member mission. We win together, we lose together. That's the Shema for us today and for God's people today. So understand, as we unpack what love actually means in Deuteronomy, it's not just an individual thing, it is all of us together. It is our mission as a church. This is what we ought to do as we seek to follow God in this world. Moses unpacks the idea of love because it's quite different from how we might use the word. And the first thing he says is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Now, we read heart and we think emotions, right? We think our emotional kind of world. But in Hebrew, the word for heart is levav. And it isn't so much your emotions as it is your emotions and your psychology all rolled together into one. It's your innermost being. It's the command center of you. It's the central processing unit, locus of control. I'm going to run out of metaphors, but we got the tech people, so we're good. It's the innermost being. So he says, love the Lord your God with your levav, with your innermost being, with the deepest, most personal, most intimate part of you where everything else flows out from. Love the Lord your God with your innermost being. Then he says, love the Lord your God with your soul. And the Hebrew word for soul is nephesh, and it can mean a few different things. It means person, desires, uh, and throat. Got it? Good? Love God with your throat. We move on to might. No. Um, the word nephesh for soul, 
it has an overtone of appetite and desire. That's why the throat. It's, ap- it's what you consume. It's what you crave. It's what you reach for and pull back with your energies. And so what Moses is saying is this. Love God, and in love, it must start in your innermost being. Then it must go out to your appetite, to your person, to your desires, to your energies. It must flow outward to desire and to appetite. Kind of see what Moses is doing here? It's getting bigger. And then it gets even bigger, and he says, Love the Lord your God in your innermost being with your appetites and with all of your might. This is my favorite because it's kind of a grammatical error, which is kind of fun. The word used for might in Hebrew is the word meod, uh, which isn't a noun. It's the, the closest thing we have for it is the word very, or the word exceedingly, or much. And so in Scripture, when you read that Goliath was exceedingly large, he was meod large. If someone was very ravenously hungry, they were meod hungry. It's like the word very I love picturing how Moses would have said this. He says, Israel, Shema, listen up, right here, right? Listen, obey. God is one. Y'all are one. You are one. This is your mission, and your mission is to love God in your innermost being, and then with your appetites and your desires, and then with your, your, your muchness, right? Your veriness, your exceedingliness. Everything else you can manage to give That is Shema love. It's big, and it radiates outwards. Here's a helpful way to look at it. In the center, we have our innermost being, the source of all things. Then we have our appetites, our person, and our desire. And then we have our muchness. The love talked about in Deuteronomy is not a fuzzy fondness. It's not a just kind of warm vibes. It is a love that begins in the center of you radiates outward to your appetites and your desires, and then explodes into everything you have left with all of your energy. It's big, and it gets bigger. Moses continues to say this, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, on your levav, on your innermost being. Why? Because that's where this all stems from. In Deuteronomy, love for God is not a matter of your will. It's not a matter of white-knuckling it and hoping you get it right. It's a matter of your heart. You cannot love God unless it begins in your innermost being. Love for God must begin in the, in the levav, in the innermost being. And then it extends outward. It's not a matter of white knuckles or hardened wills. It's a matter of hearts. And then Moses says this. You'll teach them to your children, talk of them when you sit in your house, When you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, bind them as a sign in your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Write them on the the doorposts and on your gates. So this Shema love, this whole person love, in which there is no compartment or category of ourselves which is held back, how often and where are we ought to do it? Are we to do it? Everywhere. Always. With everyone. See how big Moses is making this? With the innermost being, appetites, and muchness, what is left of you from that equation? Nothing, right? There's no compartment or category left of you. It's all, it's 100% of you. And it's everywhere, always, with everybody. Deuteronomy understands love for God 
as a 100% superlative zealous total obedience and fidelity. One iota cannot be missing to call it love. If it's 99.9%, it doesn't meet the bar. The love in Deuteronomy, the mission of the church, the one mission of the church, it's complete love. And so you can say it this way. The mission of God's people is to bear faithful witness to God through completely obedient love. And by completely, we mean in every category, every compartment, everywhere, always, every situation, in your innermost being, no thought out of place, no desire out of joint, no use of energy that is out of place, everything in line. It's a high bar. It is this love that is the mission of God's people. It is this love that all of the law and the prophets hang on, to quote Jesus. And it is this love that Moses finds is critical to leave Israel with as his last words. Think of the weight of this. This is everything. That is everything in Deuteronomy. Which makes it even more curious that in the entire Old Testament, not one person ever claims to love God. That sounds wrong, doesn't it? No, it's correct. In the entire Old Testament, you will not find one person who ever claims to love God with the word love. You'll find people who say they trusted God. You'll find people who say they fear God. But you will never find someone in the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, who actually says, I love God. You'll never, you will never find someone use the verb love personally with God as a subject. That's bizarre. That's weird. When we read the verse, love the Lord your God, we don't bat an eye. But the Israelites would have freaked out. <laughs> like, love God? Like, like, like that? In fact, if you scour the entire Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, you will only find one example of anyone who is said to have loved God. You never find it in the first person, but in the third person, you find it exactly once. Any guesses on who that is? It's not David, but that's my, that was my guess as well. Solomon, which is kind of weird, because Solomon doesn't exactly have a great ending to his story. But what's interesting is this. 1 Kings 3.3, 3, it says that Solomon showed his love for God by doing these things. That's the only time it ever happens. And then it lists a few things that Solomon did. And then the author says, except. And then they list a few other things that Solomon did that are a little bit of a gray area that kind of give you an idea that Solomon's not going to be our guy, at least not at the end of his story. So in the one example we have of someone saying that someone else loved God, there's a massive asterisk on that. The only other time we even get close is with King Josiah, who eventually finds the Torah and has it read for Israel, and he weeps as he realizes that Israel hasn't kept the law. In his story, it's said that Josiah trusted the Lord, with all of his heart, soul, and might. The author for Josiah directly quotes the Shema, but deliberately avoids the word love. You won't find it. What do we do with that? Why does no one claim to love God? To answer that question, you don't need to be a theologian. You don't need to be a scholar. You don't need to speak Hebrew. To answer that question, you just have to be honest. Because I think every one of us, when we ask the question, why does no one in the Old Testament claim to love God? 
we know it's because they don't dare to. Because they know they don't meet the bar. Because we know we don't meet the bar. I'm willing to bet as we began to work through the Shema together with the idea of love, it starts in us with a kind of happy passion. Like, yes, I would love to love God that way. You feel your very design resonate with that mission, don't you? You feel a gut-level fiery, oh, to love God that way. Yes, that's why I was designed. But as the bar gets higher and higher and higher, that happy little passion turns into a feeling of sadness and frustration and even self-dislike as we realize, I can't meet that bar. I have failed to love God. I have failed to reach the worthy standard of, of God. Even though the mission of God's church is literally and simply to completely obey him, it's not just Israel who failed, it's us. God's people has failed to love God. They have failed. We've experienced mission failure in capital letters. The one thing we are commanded to do we have failed at. We, we replay Genesis 3. We know it in our own souls that we have failed. And in Deuteronomy 31.16, Yahweh confirms as much to Moses about the fate of Israel. He says this, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. You're about to die. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Not much of a pep talk. <laughs> Moses is like laying down, ready to die, and God says, hey, you know, for the past like 30 chapters, all that stuff you said to Israel about love and unpacking what that looks like and applying it and contextualizing it, they're going to fail again and again and again and again, and the consequences are disastrous. Deuteronomy 30. See, I have set before you today, Moses speaking, life and death, or life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. It's the garden all over again, right? It's Genesis 1 and 2. If you obey God, keep his commands, live with an in-joint relationship with him by Shema loving him, innermost being, appetites, muchness everywhere all the time. If you do that, God will bless you. You'll live in the land. You'll have possession over it. And you will carry out your mission of bearing faithful witness to God. But if your heart, your levav, your innermost being, if your heart turns away and you will not Shema, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. If the first half of that is Genesis 1 and 2, this is Genesis 3. It's the fall. See that phrase, you shall surely perish? It sounds familiar. It's the garden all over again. All of a sudden, we realize we're a lot like Israel. We've seen how we've gotten here. We stand at the threshold of the kingdom of God, but we realize we're still kind of in the garden. There's still a tree, and we're still reaching for it. We're still rebelling. And the consequences and the fallout of that are deeply destructive, not just to Israel, but to all of those around them, to the mission, to the witness. 
And so my question for us this morning, the awkward tension we discover is that the Torah ends the way it begins with God's people in a garden making a choice, and we know what choice they will make. The tragedy of it all is we know what choice they'll choose because we would too. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that in Deuteronomy, the entire law, covenantal obedience, a relationship with God is summed up quite literally as love God and we have failed what do we do with that? What do we, if, our, if our mission is to bear faithful witness to God through loving him, what does that say about our witness? Do we have any witness left? How do we as God's people practice faithful witness when we are so prone to fail at our mission of loving God? To speak candidly, the past two years have been rough for the church's witness. <laughs> The election, COVID, racial tension, and everything else. Regardless of your opinions or what side of the aisle you find yourselves in those topics, the, the church hasn't always had the best witness in those moments. As God's people, we have failed to love God in the past two years. We've failed to love God many times. And it's so easy to become cynical and jaded and resentful towards the church and to say the church has no witness left. They have failed. They have failed to treat this topic correctly. They have failed to love God in this way. They have failed. They have failed. They have failed. We have no witness left. The church has failed at being a witness. So today, living in the complicated world as we do, with the failure we have and that we are complicit in, how do we practice faithful witness, our mission, when we are so prone to fail at loving God? Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 6. This is Moses speaking. And when all these things come upon you, Israel has found themselves in exile and slavery and all these horrible things because of their failure. So when all of these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may now possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And here's, here's the kicker. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. It's a fascinating end to Deuteronomy. It's a fascinating thing to be included in Moses' last words. We've gone from the mission of the church is completely obedient love, but you're going to fail. And when you do, the consequences and the curse will be unfathomably bad. But, but, if you repent, if you turn around, if you come back to the Lord, he is faithful to forgive. And not only to forgive, God is faithful to transform you. Notice how it ends. It doesn't just say, and God will forgive you, and he will wait until the next time you mess up, and then we'll do the whole thing again. All of a sudden, 
we understand that this book, Deuteronomy, has jumped into the future. And we aren't just looking at here and now. We are looking at the design of all things, the kingdom of heaven coming to earth, and the hope that, yes, God will transform our hearts. It isn't to say God will forgive you and I hope you can get your will sharpened enough to follow him. May the odds be ever in your favor. It says God will transform your heart. It's been said before that uh, the, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, right? Love flows from the heart. It's our inability to love God, our self-destruction. And God knows that we can't change our own hearts. And he has promised to transform them, promised to make them new. And in the way that Deuteronomy says it, God will transform your heart into a heart that loves him with heart, soul, and might. Friends, understand this morning— we stand at the threshold of a promise of being transformed into people who truly love God and others. The day will come when you have no sin. For those that follow Jesus, repent in their failings and cling to him in faithfulness. Though they fail, though they struggle, it is God's goodness and faithfulness that counts. The day will come when you have no sin, you have no selfishness, there is no, there's no fly in the ointment, there, there's nothing held back, there's no category or compartment of your whole being that is held back from loving God. That fiery burning passion we feel to love God in the way that Moses talks about, that is reality. It's a pro- that's, the, that's the gospel, that's the promise, that's the transformation that awaits those who are in Christ Jesus. The day is coming when in a twinkling of an eye, we will be transformed into people who truly love God with your innermost being, your appetites, your muchness, everywhere, always, with everyone. The day is coming when sin will not easily entangle. The day will come when sin no longer crouches at the door. The day will come where there is no speck in the eye of the brother or log in your own. The day will come when your heart needn't be purified because it's already been done for you in Christ. If you're here this morning and your unfaithfulness is staring at you in the face, as the Shema kind of has a way of doing, understand that God is transforming us. The day will come when you love God perfectly. The day will come when you are fully transformed into people who love God with everything. God isn't just transforming creation. He's transforming your heart and your relationship with him. The struggle and the failure that weighs so heavily, maybe even this morning on you, it is not forever. It is so temporary. It will be lifted like the burden it is, and there will be a day with no tears, no suffering, because we fully love God perfectly. So, what's our job in the meantime? Our job in the meantime is to seek to love God, repent when we fail, and to bear faithful witness, not to our own love for God, but his love for us. In 2021, with where we find ourselves as God's people today, repentance and confession and humility might be the sharpest tools of witness that we have. Honest repentance when we have failed. Honest confession when we have failed to love others and God. Honest confession when we have failed to have compassion, when we have failed to love brother and sister, when we have failed to love God. Our repentance is the fuel for our witness. 
Witness is not about how well you love God. It's about how well you repent when you fail. And in Jesus, we find forgiveness. It is the strength of God's love for you, not your love for him. Faithful witness was never about your performance. It was always about God's faithfulness and his promise. So this morning, what I pray is developed in your innermost being is hope. Hope that the sin of today is not the sin of eternity, that God will clean us and purify us. Our job in the meantime is to repent as the wilderness forced the Israelites to, as God transformed Israel in the wilderness. That is our job. That is our mission, to faithfully stand witness to God's faithful love for us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for today. Thank you. This is a morning where your mercies are new. And I thank you that the story of the Torah, the story that transforms us, is not one of where we simply perform, but it is one where you save. I pray that as we as God's people stand on the threshold of the kingdom of God, which is at hand, that you reinforce our hopes with a profound belief that the day will come when we love you perfectly. Sin will be gone which so easily entangles. So give us hope for your transformation, compassion for others, and a faithful witness to stand witness to your love. In your name, amen.